Awesome. As that goes around, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 is where we're going to be today. Um, We'll have it on the screen as well. We have been in this series uh, called Intentional, and we're going to wrap that up today. Um, But as you're turning, I want to tell you a problem that I have, uh, and this is just a little bit of like gripe session for me, a little bit of whininess for me. So is that, is that safe today? You guys don't really have a choice, but I want you to feel like you're a part of this. Um, but I want to tell you why this, this day and age, it's a little bit hard to be a pastor. And, and it's going to sound like I'm whining. I'm really not, but I, I want you to understand why for most of our churches in the Western world, this has become a challenge. See, back in April of this year, the Gallup organization that puts out all the surveys that we see um, surveyed uh, the, the U.S., and they, they surveyed all 50 states, and they found, and I just want you to kind of think about this because I'm going to cover a bunch of statistics, and I'm going to tell you why it's hard to be a pastor, okay? So what they found was that only 50% of Americans today from all 50 states report to actually belonging to either a church, a synagogue, or a mosque, that half of our population surveyed, that's what they report is belonging to that. That's an all-time low for our nation, right? So from 19, let me give you some perspective. From 1937 to 1976, U.S. church membership was at 70% or higher, okay? That's, that's kind of where it resided. In 1999, it was back at 70%. So in the course of the past 20 years, we have seen a 20% drop in those who would say, yes, I belong to a church. It is, it is increasingly declined. So U.S. adults with no religious affiliation, they're actually labeled today as the nuns, not N-U-N-N-O-N-E. The nuns, those with no religious affiliation, has more than doubled in that time from 8 to 19%. One, one writer says it's clear then that the nature of Americans' orientation to religion is changing, with fewer religious Americans finding membership in a church or other faith institution to be a necessary part of their religious experience. So what they're saying is, even those who are religious, who have a faith, would say we're not affiliated, we're not committed. Now the question that I would ask is why? Why is this happening? So if you start to break down, in the younger populations, the statistics are even less. So for um, traditionalists, if anybody's ever studied like age theory and kind of looked at like how they break down generations. So they call the, generali- the, the traditionalists are those who were 1945 and before. If you were born before 1945, you are known kind of by the sociologists as traditionalists. Some of you have checked out already. I'm boring right now. Just hang with me. It's going to pay off. of traditionalists would say they're still connected, committed to a religious institution. Baby boomers, how many baby boomers we got? 1946 to 1964. It varies a little bit. The boomers would say uh, about 57% of them belong. Gen X, that's kind of 1965 to 1980. Um, That's me. Anybody else? Come on, hands up. Well done. At 54% of them, they they would say they belong. And then millennials, where's our millennials? They're like, got my coffee. Let's go. I'm just kidding. They, 1980 to 2000 on through, 42% of millennials would say they belong to a church. So we're seeing this incredible decrease of belonging, of commitment. The reality is, here, here's another study, that six to 10,000 churches die each year in America. 
that they actually close their doors. That's probably only going to grow. Donations, financial donations have been declining for decades. Those religious nuns are growing. I I like this quote. Years ago, the neighborhood church was the place many in America got together, and along with local schools was where they got to know their neighbors. But this model is no longer relevant for many people, so churches have to think creatively about how to help people encounter others and God in their everyday lives. So here's the reality. This is why I say to you, it's a little bit hard to be a pastor today. I get to lead, and I love this this privilege that I have, lead an organization that depends on consistency and loyalty to keep us open and thriving. And so the question we should be asking in a generation that, by the way, I think we're just a little bit behind the fraternal orders like the elks, the moose that are already declining, right? Right? that are sensing this same thing, the question we need to be asking is how do we help those who are religious or maybe need to encounter Jesus, but they're unaffiliated, commit to walking with the community? See, the statistic is that roughly one in four U.S. adults are religious, but not committed to a church. How many of you know these folks? Just be honest. That's what we know. And here's why this happens, because I'm going to tell you the truth. Is that okay? We're going to tell the truth today. We are not trusted. Churches today are often not trusted, especially when you start to zero in on the millennial generation where only 42% are committed. Churches are not trusted. The assumptions that are made by the broader culture. Now, please, if you get offended by this, I'm going to tell you you're part of the problem because you don't have a right to be offended. You have a right to be sent with the gospel. That's the sermon today. I just gave it to you. If you need to leave, you can go. But the assumption is the church, from the broader culture, the assumption is the church is deeply entwined with partisan politics, the church is deeply hypocritical, and the leadership will fail them. So we are not trusted. Predictions are being made. This is from a, a, an article in a, 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 a news organization. I can't get my words out today. Cold medicine. That in 40 years, theologians in Europe were saying that there will still be faithful Christians worshiping, but a smaller number worshiping in fewer buildings. They, won't, they, they, they say that it won't be normal to be a Christian any longer. That's what they're saying in Europe, and they're a little bit ahead of us trend-wise. In 2000, one, one organization predicted that in 40 years, Christianity in Europe would be dead. That was in the year 2000. 20 years later, only 50% of the population attends churches. So it's not real fun at times to be leading an organization that, watch, I believe can change the world and should change the world, but it's really hard to get people to even care enough to commit and show up. There's this tension that I feel, which is where we're going today, right? Over the past four weeks, we've been talking about several tensions that we need to step toward as followers of Jesus. If you are not a follower of Jesus, you are off the hook today. You are welcome to just struggle with this, and you can agree with me about the parts where non-Christians would say, that's why I don't go to church. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're here, what I've been saying to you for the past four weeks is that these tensions are something that we should engage and not just avoid, And most of us live our lives trying to eliminate tension, trying to get away from conflict, trying to live as comfortably as possible. But for these four tensions, we've said we've got to understand we have to step towards these. So I gave you all a card on your seat. You need to grab that card. This shows you the four directions, the four tensions that I think we need to lay claim to. If you threw it on the floor already, I'm a little offended. So (laughs) kidding. 
So the first tension that we talked about in week one was this inward tension. We talked about the arrows going inward, that for us to grow spiritually, we have to take the journey inside of ourselves. Many of us want to grow spiritually, but we don't want to acknowledge the darkness, the baggage, the hurt that's within us. We talked about going withward, those two arrows together, and saying that we have to, as churches, we have to fight for unity as we journey together. We have to walk with each other, and sometimes that's hard because I'm annoying and you don't like me. And sometimes it's hard because God forbid, you might have some things that are just a little bit not perfect. But we have to journey withward to maintain this goal of unity. And then we talked last week about what it means to go upward, dreamward, to dream about the things God dreams of in our lives, that we believe God has certain callings for us that we have to step toward. Now today, we're gonna talk about this last direction, one last tension, and I believe if we follow Christ, we have to wrestle with this tension, and the tension is simple, and I believe, I'm just gonna tell you this, this is less a message about you and more a message about the church, Because if we don't, as followers of Jesus, start stepping towards this tension, we're not going to exist as the church that we know anymore. And we have to understand that. It's critical. See, the church is in our culture, and I don't know if if maybe this is the first you're hearing it, but when you look at these statistics, I want you to recognize that the church in our Western culture, in its current form, is in serious and desperate decline. It is not going to continue to exist as it is. You could, I've been watching a lot of ER, right? Anybody remember ER? Some of you are like, Grey's Anatomy. That, no, that's a soap opera. ER was drama. That's, okay, here's what we got. But in all those medical shows, there's a moment, right, where things just go beep, 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 and it flatlines, right? What I feel like is that at times when we think about the church and we think about the way that we do the church, we're seeing something in our culture that is really close, if not already, flatlining. When you consider that six to 10,000 churches in the U.S. close every single year, we have to start that many just to keep up, and that's not even factoring population growth. It's not even factoring what the gospel requires. So what I have to say is that when someone's flatlining, nobody sits around. This is, this is the, the metaphor, right? Nobody sits around when somebody's dying on the emergency room table and goes, I kind of like the sound of that. That's, that's my traditional music, that beep, 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 beep. That's my preference. So let's just keep that there. Let's not do anything, right? I, I don't want to be, be bothered to be the doctor at this point because it really is uncomfortable for me. I, I'd like to just sit here on the side and take notes. Could you just give me the Hebrew explanation of why this body's dying? You see what I'm saying? We have to step in. When we recognize that something is flatlining, the system either has to face the tension and adapt and change or watch the patient continue to die. And I think that's where we are. So before I tell you what the fourth tension is, I want to look at the end of this section of Ephesians that we've been studying. And I want to see if you see this. I want to unpack these verses for you. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 11. Here's what it says. So Christ himself gave. Now just pause there before we go on to the rest of that verse because it tells us that Christ gave something. Christ gave uh, something to us. Remember, this is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. He's spelling out what the church should understand. Many, many would say this was kind of the constitution of the early church, that this book, this chapter especially was the constitution. So what this echoes in verse 11, you can go back and see this, Verse 7 and 8 also tells us, like we said last week, Christ gave gifts. 
It tells us that when Christ died on the cross and he resurrected, that he took captivity captive and he gave gifts to his people. But what verse 7 tells us is that the giver is the gift. That Christ himself, the one who gives the gifts, is the gift. Are you confused yet? That's my, that's my goal, tension. We're trying to create that today. But it says as he gives gifts, he is the gifts. Now watch, because Paul tells us next what these gifts are, verse 11. So Christ himself gave. Now watch, it says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and you could, you could sub that word as shepherd, the pastors or shepherds, and the teachers. Let me just tell you about the church as it exists today. We actually, you actually believe only part of this verse. That's what we actually function with. Now, you may say, no, 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 I believe all of Scripture. You do, but functionally, you only believe part of this verse. I'm going to explain it to you why. You believe Christ gave pastors and teachers to the church. Because here's what I know. People leave churches because of their problem with the pastor. Right? They go to a church because they really like the pastor. They leave a church because they didn't like the teaching. They go to a church because the teaching felt relevant to their lives. They don't, I've never heard anyone come to me and say, man, I left that church because I couldn't stand the prophets there. Nobody's ever said that. Nobody's ever come to me and said, those apostles were so annoying. Those evangelists just got on my nerves. They were, they were evangelizing in a way that I wasn't hap happy with. So what we do, let me break this down. We have to understand what these are all about. So let me give you these words real briefly. Apostle, the word in Greek is apostolo. Now what this word literally means is sent. Everybody say sent. So 80 plus times, watch this, 80 plus times in the New Testament, this word apostle is used. Typically, it references the 12 disciples plus Paul. But here in Ephesians, we see that this word, the apostles, Christ himself gave the apostles. It's still in use as a gift or a role in the Ephesian church. Apostles, this word sent, what, think about this. And, and as we go through these, I want you to think, which of these, just like last week, which of these connects with your heart? Which of these is you going, I think that's me. I think I have that gift. Because here's what I know. If you follow Christ, the spirit lives in you and you have been given gifts, right? So when we talk about apostles, apostles are the ones who plant the gospel in innovative ways. Paul planted the gospel. He didn't plant churches, do you understand this difference? Jesus didn't say, go and make churches. He said, go and make disciples. Go proclaim the good news. I, in seven years of planting this church, I've learned one thing, that if we plant churches, which I love, we think we know what we're doing. If I go plant a church, I think I know what we're doing. I know how to pick music style. I know how to maybe organize kids' ministry or find someone who does, because I really don't know how to do that. I know what to do with that stuff. But here's the thing. If I think I know what I'm doing, it will probably fail. But when we plant the gospel, the church grows out of those being submitted to God. That's what happens. It's an apostolic work. It's a sent work. Apostles are the ones who sit in communities of faith and long for every neighborhood, every sphere, every domain to be touched by the gospel. See, some of you I know struggle because I'm not very pastoral. I got apostleship. You can't blame me. God gave me that. No, I'm kidding. I have to grow in my pastoral skills, and I am. I'm trying to do that. But apostles are the sent ones. Let me talk to, to the prophets. This is one we might get a little uncomfortable with. 
If apostle is mentioned 80 times or more in the New Testament, prophet is mentioned 40 times. Their whole being, the prophet's whole essence, whole identity is about being in tune with God. So think about this. The prophet's ears are attentive to God, listening to the things that God says. They want to speak from their mouth the words that God speaks. Their eyes see what God is doing. It's not that they just tell the future, but they have foresight. They might say, we can't go that route. That's not faithful to God. But they also have insight. Prophets speak truth to power. Their heart feels what God feels. They, prophets make us super uncomfortable. That's my second. <laughs> if you rank mine, that's my second, right? They carry the passion of God. Prophets have love and anger over the things that God feels. They want to guard the relationship of the covenant with God's people, turning our hearts away from idolatry. So a prophet doesn't have any trouble coming up to you and say, no, you're being a jerk because you're not being faithful to God. Now, that's uncomfortable if we start practicing that in the church, Right? See, the prophets have two dimensions. They help us look upward to carry out our relationship with God well and horizontally. If you love God, you have to love people and justice and mercy. That's what the prophet says. Then we go to the evangelist. The evangelist is mentioned about 10 times in the New Testament. The evangelist is the one who's kind of the recruiter to the cause. This is how I describe the evangelist, and it's relevant this week. They, they sneeze the gospel. Right? Like they, they, they make it contagious. They're going into the world and saying, you don't know Jesus? I'm going to evangelize. I'm going to proclaim the good news because I want you to understand the story of Jesus. Now, we get from apostle, prophet, evangelist to pastor, right? Now, here's the role of pastor. And I told you, this is, this is shepherd. Some people abbreviate this, apest, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, The pastor, the shepherd, creates and sustains community. They guard and defend. The word literally means, watch, shepherd, a herder of sheep, someone that walks beside them. So uh, before I tell you how many times this is mentioned in the New Testament, let me tell you what the the shepherd does. The shepherd, shepherd is about correcting and guiding. You don't let your sheep wander away. You correct them. You guide them back. It's also about protecting and providing. So it's about care, but it's also about guidance. It's about both of those things. Now, let me tell you about teachers. Teachers actually connect the dots of discipleship, systematic understandings. It's helping people understand, well, this is what discipleship looks like. This is why God said this, and this is what this means for your life. What is God saying to you? What are you going to do about this? Does this make more sense? Are you tracking with me? When they spell this out, so Christ gave him gave gifts, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. Now, I want you to think about something, and I'm going to get really deep for a second, and then I want you to, to understand why I'm doing this. We are told in Ephesians 4 that Christ gave of himself. So if this is Christ giving of himself, what you have to understand is that Christ fully embodied all parts of this. You could look back at Jesus' life and say, was he apostolic? Yes, he was apostolic. God sent Jesus into the world to establish the gospel. Was he prophetic? Absolutely. He was never afraid to walk in the temple and flip the tables over. Was he evangelistic? Yes, he went and proclaimed the good news. Did he pastor? Did he shepherd? Yes, he did that. Did he teach? Of course, he was the rabbi. He taught all those things. So for us to be the body of Christ, which is what Paul says we are, we should represent all five pieces of this. 
Our churches should represent apostles, pastors, or prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. We should have all of that at work in our churches today for us to be the churches God has called us to be. Now, here's my question, and I actually want you to, to, to participate here. This is not like just politely look at me. Okay. Can we put that list back up if you don't mind? By the way, Wyatt is doing awesome. Wyatt's our new computer guy. Give him a hand. Well done. Which of these in our churches would you say is the most important or most valued today? What would you say? Yeah, it's the pastor. It's the pastor, the teacher, right? We don't talk about the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists very often. You might see traveling evangelists. We'll have a special revival, right, I, which is always fascinating to me. How can we schedule revival? Did you ever think about that? But we value shepherds and teachers. Now, let me, let, me, let me just let you in on this. Apostle, 80 times in the New Testament. Prophet, 40 times. Evangelist, 10 times. How many times, just take a guess, how many times do you think the word pastor is mentioned in the New Testament? The word in Greek is poimen, by the way. Any guesses? One time. Ephesians 4, one time. It's mentioned one time. But I've had so many people get mad at me and leave because they didn't like the pastor. I'm the least important in all this. Don't miss this. We have, watch what we've done as the church. We have inverted the understanding of the church as a place where the pastor cares for us instead of the place that gets to send us. I'm going to say that again because you all should have amen if you really believe the gospel. We have transformed the value of the church as a place that is about our comfort, our care. And listen, I love that. I honor that. I journey with you. I value that. However, that's not the only purpose of the church. The church was founded to be a mission organization that helps you discover, are you apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher? And once you figure that out, we're going to send you back out. And because, some of you are like, I don't really believe that. Because we don't believe that, only 50% of our population in the U.S. is finding a connection to the faith community of Christ. We have an identity crisis. You know what I mean by that? We've gotten really good at being what we are, but it's not who we're called to be. The church has begun to be something that we were never called to be. Because let's keep reading. Paul tells us why Jesus gave us these gifts. So he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teacher. And I go, why? Why did he do that? Verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Did you catch it? To equip his people. Are you a follower of Christ? Guess what? You're his people. You're supposed to be equipped for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Watch verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You know what the fullness of Christ is? It's the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teacher living fully into who God has made him to be. And by the way, if you're not living into this, you're missing the joy and the freedom of being disciples. If your faith, I've said this so many times, if your faith is just about being here on Sunday mornings because the music's good and the teaching's okay and the people are nice and the coffee's great, whatever, you're missing the point and we're missing the point. Why did Jesus fight the battle for captives so they could have nice church services. No. 
He battled for our freedom to put his dreams in our heart like we talked about last week. He did it so we could be equipped for works of service that will actually keep building the body of Christ. And watch again, all the statistics point to this. Because we've missed this, the body is being torn down. The body is in decline. The body is somewhat flatlining. So here's this final tension. Grab that card. It's those final arrows, the outward tension. See, we have set up churches, and I'm just as guilty of this as anybody else. We've set up churches with pastors who allow the church to not be the church as God intended it to be. We've set up congregations where if my goal is to keep us open and thriving rather than keep you moving and sending, I'm missing the point. By setting up churches where the emphasis of ministry, gifting, and leadership falls on the pastors and the teachers alone or the trained leaders or the ministry leaders or the leadership team or those who took a couple seminary classes, if it's only on them, we're missing out on the nature of the sent church. Can I just tell you this? This passage, this series, I don't know if you recognize the weight of what this series has had in my life. I have failed in this. And, and, and just as we need some repentance sometimes, I'm standing before you saying, I'm repenting of this, and you need to know there's some things that are changing, because I think along the way, somehow in these past seven years, I convinced you that if you could get your non-Christian friends in the door, I'd close the deal. That we would do something special enough, something shocking enough, something cool enough, something topical enough, that if they walked in and sat down, you'd go, See, this is great. Don't you like my church? It's safe. They're not weird. They're not hypocritical. And the guy has tattoos. It's okay. Like, that's kind of what I think we've assumed. And I think that we've missed the point because here's the reality. It isn't working. And I don't mean it just for us. I mean it for every church in the U.S. that is in decline. We are finding, we are realizing that the average church person is not as committed because we've not equipped them for works of service. What I want to say to you is Christ gave us these gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. Some of you are called to apostolic work. Some of you, when you think about the church in decline, you go, yeah, I've got ideas of how we could shift this. I've got ideas of how we could innovate and create. Some of you are called and gifted as prophets. And I don't mean you hold a crystal ball and tell the future. I mean you have a prophetic voice that we need to hear, that others need to hear. Some of you are called to evangelism. And that doesn't mean you become a street preacher threatening people with hell. It means you're going to people who don't know Jesus because that's the gift you have. But I want to say to you, we can't do this if we don't have some kind of intentional journey of discipleship. If we aren't together walking into this transformation, back, uh, I think in May, go ahead and bring the next slide up. Back in May, I presented to you, oh, let's skip that one. Let's go to the huddles and hubs, that one. Back in May on Foundation Sunday, I presented to you guys some language that we're starting to use in this church. And I want to revisit this because this is, this is, how many of you have like family culture language, things that it, you say it in your family and if you say it, nobody else gets it? Anybody got an example? Like, explain it to us. Got one? It's chorizo. Yeah. Chonzo. You got chonzo. You have chonzo. Okay, so, perfect. I'm so glad you sat in the front today. Well done. Um, 
we have language, and language creates culture, right? So for us, we've been struggling. What does Beyond Sundays look like? What does this mean? Huddles and hubs is the language that we've adopted. Now, let me explain to you what this is. Some of you know when we talk about huddles, we're talking about a group of people who say, I want to know what God's doing in my life, and I want to obey that. It's discipleship. It's a discipleship group. You might call it a small group. You might call it a community group. You might call it whatever you want. For us, it's a huddle. We started a pilot huddle because I said, I don't want to screw up a whole bunch of people. Let's take a few that really like me, and let's go for a year and see how this works. And I'm going to teach them what I think it means to follow Jesus and help them respond to that. And then at the end of that year, they're going to create a huddle of their own, and we're going to start this multiplication movement. So discipleship in our church, if you're here and you're saying, I want to grow in this. I want to know what my gifts are. I want to go deep into this. The huddle is the place to do that. And if you want to join a huddle, it's really simple. Go back to the back, grab a connection card, write your name down, and say, I'm in. But let me just say to you, don't make this a Sunday where the sermon was good, you got a little emotional, and you signed up, and two weeks later, you're not going to show up for anything. Can I just say that? Because I don't, I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm saying that because you're all as tired as I am. You're as overcommitted as I am. That's the nature of our culture. When you create the space in your life, go there. When you don't, rest, learn to be still, then watch what God does. Those are our huddles. Now, what we're dreaming about as the sent people is what we're calling hubs. I want to plant a movement across Appalachia. That's my goal. That's what I feel called to. I dream about every county in Appalachia. Do you know there's 206 of them? Bet you didn't. Do you know there's 13 states? Bet you didn't. You know we're the only state entirely encompassed in that region? Other states have regions that, but you know nobody in our culture, nobody in our U.S. nation is talking about how do we reach ministry in Appalachia. They're talking about New York City. They're talking about Chicago. They're talking about L.A. They're not talking about these regions. I think God has positioned us, by the way, in the center of center Appalachia to do this because anybody who's talking about calls it Appalachian, and that's wrong, Amen. See, what I'm dreaming about is people start to start dreaming about what God has wired them for and says, I, I see the potential of mission in my neighborhood. What does that look like? Well, I just want to host a dinner every week and invite friends and family to come be a part of that. And we're going to be intentional with the gospel. I'm not going to scare them away. I'm just going to love the people of my, of my neighborhood because nobody's doing it. That's a hub. Somebody else, she's not here today, Gail Poling has been mentoring for Appalachian Impact. She said, I'm not getting enough time with the kid in the school because the schedule's crazy. So I talked to a church in my little community, and we're going to go to that church, and we want to create a little group for girls. That's a hub of mission. That's apostolic work. That's shepherding work. We have to start to dream about these things. And I'm going to close with this. I think when we put these tensions together, grab, grab that card. You'll, you'll see those arrows. This, I, I gave you this because I think it becomes a regular rhythm for our life. It becomes a regular rhythm to say, what is God inward? What is God saying to me about what's inside of me? When we say withward, who is it that I'm journeying with? Where do I need to create reconciliation? Where do I need to ask for forgiveness or seek forgiveness or create unity? Again, when we ask the dreamward direction, we say, what, what is God dreaming for me that I can live into? And then this outward direction, what is God saying and what am I going to do about it? Where am I going to go with this? We need to be regularly asking ourselves these questions. I, I want to give you an example of this, and this is where I'll close. There's an organization called Missional Wisdom. Um, 
And they had this idea. They said, you know, when you look at these statistics, when you look at these populations and these churches that are dying off and in decline and these buildings that are not sure how to keep themselves open, you know that's our, our county too, right? Like this is all over the place. They said, what if, what if we come alongside them and help them kind of innovate and reimagine what it means to do ministry in a different way? So to test their idea, they approached the pastor of one church in Dallas about collaborating. Now listen, about a half century ago, this church, which was a Methodist church, was a massive congregation with huge weekly programming, a strong reputation in the community, and, and wouldn't our dreams be nice? A 60,000 square foot building. That'd be fun. But they said the neighborhood's demographics shifted in recent years and church membership waned. Its combination of sprawling space and shrinking attendance made this church the perfect guinea pig for testing some new stuff. So here's what they did. They moved into the bottom 15,000 square feet of this building and they got to work. They converted the fellowship hall into a co-working space and transformed Sunday school rooms into a workshop for local artisans, including a florist, a stained glass window artist formed an economic empowerment center where the group teaches a local population of African refugees language and business skills, and it finished out the space with a yoga studio and a community dance studio. Today, the church building is busy most days, and the congregation's both covering expenses and generating revenue from its profit-sharing agreement with missional wisdom. Here's what I'm saying to you, okay? And the band can come, because I'm just rambling now. I wanted this building. Many of you know this, right? Like, we wanted this building. And I still want this building. I'm still frustrated that we got to think about moving again. And everything's looking great. By the way, the, the, the church, it's, we had our, our congregational meeting last week. Many of you uh, maybe weren't here. Um, it's First Presbyterian Church, which meets directly behind the, is it Community Bank? Is that the name of the bank? Um, across from the courthouse. This church, and when I, when, when I reached out to the guy that's serving as pastor there, I thought, no, this is going to be that other building, part two, that we were in. It's old. It's going to be broken down. We're not going to know what to do. It's gonna, this building's in beautiful shape. We're, we're going to be in there. I think it's looking like the beginning of October. Please keep that here. They have not announced. I mean, they've, they've announced, but they're not fully voted. Um, it's going to save us about $1,000 a month. Can I get an amen? <laughs> you guys aren't as excited about that um, as you should be. But here's the thing. What if part of this journey, and I don't, you, you guys may just be like, yeah, you spin this every time. Well, here's the deal. I don't spin anything. I'm telling you what I'm journeying through on my own. What if God is kind of writing this story in a way that says, I don't want you to look like everything else that's been done. I don't want you to just get your new building or build a big building because that thing is not working. That machine is declining. That thing, our population is not even, how many of you have friends that you've invited so many times and you just can't get them to commit? Anybody? Come on, be honest. I want us to stop being frustrated about that and discouraged about that and actually be encouraged that maybe the work of God doing something missionally is to send us out. And if we can shed as much of the, the operational weight as possible, we can go after the things that God originally called us to. I will continue to be your pastor and serve as a teacher, but I need you to be apostles and prophets and evangelists for this church to be what this church is supposed to be. And if you feel like you need help getting equipped in that, man, let me know, because I'm ready for a whole bunch of people that are going to say, here am I, send me, let's go because I think we know that our community needs life. See, the gospel isn't just about getting people on a Sunday morning saved. That's part of it. But the gospel is about rebuilding cities. The gospel is about combating addiction, right? We live in a place that's getting overrun by this.
The gospel is about stepping into the lives of people who are living in poverty and saying, we want to give you hope. The gospel is about looking at a generation of children who are growing up, by the way, without fathers, without parents, without mothers, and saying, we will step in and be the family you need. This is the gospel. This is what we go after. And I want us to be about that. I don't have a good closing for today. All those say, you're sent, you're called. And when you start stepping towards these tensions, we're going to journey with you. Sundays, I'm not trying to entertain you. I'm trying to call you to be disciples of Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll sing.